When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he's thinking about playing some of those full text basic lands. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, I don't have a joke this week so much as a story I got to observe. Uh, my friend asked her husband if he thought that the kids were spoiled and he just responded, no, I'm pretty sure they're supposed to smell like that. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, that tracks with my experience with children, not going to lie. I, I <laughs> They, they might have needed a diaper change, but that I'm not a parent, so I don't know. What a great image to start off on. Anyway, up next, he's thinking about playing full text basic everything. That's Dana Roach. Um, I just got my shipment in of Mystical Archive etched foils, and I have to admit I wouldn't have thought of the solution to stop curling by not putting any actual foil on your fo- foils, so... <laughs> Well played, I guess. Can't can't curl the foils if there's no foil <laughs> yeah, to curl. Yeah, I mean that's that's a big brain move right there. There you go. We're off to a, a, a feisty start in this episode now, aren't we? Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the EDH RecCast, what we like to do is give all that data a little more context. Matt, what is it that we're talking about in this episode? This episode, we are going to talk about the utility lands for the format. We're going to go through our own decks a little bit and kind of compare what we're doing on our own decks and how that stacks up with the rest of the format and what we're seeing on the EDH rec data. Very much. Utility lands are such a huge piece of building an EDH deck. You've got your regular basic lands, you've got your color fixing lands, and then you've also got lands that can do extra work for you and have basically spell effects right there in your mana base. It's like free value. It's free real estate. I think I'm supposed to whisper 
free real estate when I say that. Yeah, there's just so much to talk about when it comes to utility lands, but which ones are worth it? How many should your deck run? It should be a whole bunch of fun. Of course, really quick before we get to our main topic, we want to pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone podcast. They handle the post-production work on our podcast here, making it look as awesome as it does. So thank you so much. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't thank our sponsors for the show too. The Idiot Fretcast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. Any mystical archive you want, Card Kingdom will have in their extensive inventory and they will ship it to you immediately. You can get that etched foil without much foil on it, um, <laughs> just like I picked up. Similarly, TCG Player has anything you might want from way back in Alpha all the way up to Zendikar. They will get it to you right quick. Just go to EDHREC, click on the card in question, and choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRETCAST. We have tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to see our own mystical archive of historic challenge of stats picks, we have something for you there. Or if you just want to join the Discord community and hang out in the great community that we have going on, you can do that as well. We have Patreon-exclusive content that we've begun posting. So if you mm -hmm. want to get any of that, you can only do that at patreon.com slash EDHRETCAST. Recast. Uh, we even have a very special tier where we give a shout out to one patron just for being a patron. All you have to do is just support us and we'll give you this very awesome shout out. I think they're pretty awesome. So this week, Geoffrey Castle or Jeffrey Castle, you never know. It's got the G there. Um, but thank you so much for all of your support. We definitely appreciate it. Um, and yeah, just for hanging out with us. Yeah, Jeffrey, thank you so much. Uh, this is just, it's, it's really a wonderful community. It's a really great time. And we do have some of that Patreon exclusive content that we're putting out every month as well. So that's a whole bunch of fun. And of course, you can come and find us when we're streaming as well. Twitch.tv slash EDHRECast every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We've had amazing guests on the stream. It's so much fun. And Dana, who's coming up this next following week on our stream? Up next, we should, should have uh, Philippa MTG joining us for uh, a couple of games. Uh, that would be at 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern on Twitch TV slash EDHRECast. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's just a whole bunch of stuff. There's so much EDH happening in EDH rec, and it's just, it's a great, great time for sure. But okay, fellas, let's get back onto track now. We are talking about utility lands. This, I feel like, is such a broad term for so many people, but like, it's actually a huge piece of EDH games because you can get just free value right there in your mana base. So specifically for this episode, we're not going to be talking about any color fixing lands. Those are a completely different style, even like the Triumphs, for example. There is utility to those because they do have a cycling ability, but those are mostly in a deck because of their color fixing ability. And we're, of course, not going to be talking about basics. Instead, we're going to be talking about utility lands specifically and our deck building relationship to them. And this is where I feel like I got to say, I, I, I did a little bit of digging when it comes to our personal deck list to see which utility lands we're running. And we're all over the place. Dana, I feel like I'll pass it off to you because you happen to have a great love of utility lands um, it, from what I've seen from your deck lists. Is, is that a good way of phrasing it? That would be a way you could phrase that, I think. Yeah, um, I would guess on average I run more utility lands than you and Matt combined. Yes, that, uh, that is statistically correct, actually. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I am not afraid to put utility lands into all of my decks for sure. Yeah. Um, probably so, at the expense of basics for the most part, I would say. It's not like I'm skimping on my dual lands either. I, I run probably not enough basics, and that's tends to be where the utility lands goes in those slots. And Matt, what do we always say when Dana's not running enough basics? Play more basics, which is what I do. I Dana don't disagree. 
Yeah, Dane and I are on the exact opposite sides of the spectrum here. Um, I tend to favor basics and just keeping everything efficient. Uh, Dana just wants to lose two life just to, <laughs> to add two mana. I prefer to do that with a soul ring. He plays ancient tomb. Uh, whatever floats your boat, man. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I'm kind of right here in the middle. I play not as much as Dana, but not as few as Matt. So we've got quite a wide range of experience when it comes to them. But let's actually familiarize ourselves with some of these uh, utility lands out there. Dana, walk us through a handful of the most popular utility lands according to EDHREC. What are we seeing at the highest tier, the highest numbers overall for those utility lands that are giving us so much extra value in our mana bases? So if, if we're looking at decks um, from the last two years, um, you know, the most popular utility land or at least based on the decks it can go in, will be Bajuka Bug. It's in 82,000 decks, and mm. because it can only go in decks that that are black, obviously that, that total number isn't as high as, say, Reliquary Tower, which can go in any deck, but by percentage, Bajuka Bug is in the, the highest percentage of decks it can possibly fit in. So what I'm realizing is that this is actually going to be one of my least favorite shows. Yes, you're not going to like this. Don't like hearing that number at all. Mm -mm, um, and, all. And, and for those that don't know, Paducah Bug is just a land that comes into play tapped, and you can tap it for a black mana. However, when it ETBs, exile all cards from target player's graveyard. So it's just a it's a land that makes black mana that you can use to zap an entire graveyard on ETB. Yeah, and mm -hmm. with a lot of utility lands, kind of the downside is having it come into play tapped. You'll see that on a lot of dual lands. You'll see that on a lot of utility lands that we'll talk about this episode. Um, with Bajuka Bog, you almost don't mind having that come into play tapped because you're roughly paying one black mana to exile target player's graveyard, which is an amazing rate. That is such a powerful effect. Uh, it, I even play Bajuka Bog in some decks. That's how <laughs> good you, it is. Even, even so I can't cute. deny that power. <laughs> yeah. But also showing up in 30% of decks that can play it, which is a much bigger number because this is a colorless land that can go anywhere, is just a straight up Reliquary Tower. It shows up in over 150,000 decks. Reliquary Tower, you have no maximum hand size, just taps for colorless mana. Thing's great. I don't understand this one either, though, guys. Like, wouldn't you want to have a maximum hand size of seven so you have to discard cards to fill up your graveyard? Like, why are people playing this? I, I think that happens less often than you realize, Joey, that not everyone is constantly looking to chuck stuff into their graveyard like you are. I don't understand. Of course you you wouldn't. Uh, I, what I will say here about Reliquary Tower, and, and I'm someone who runs it in a whole lot of decks, um, this isn't the last time I will say do as I say, not as I do. Um Reliquary Tower probably isn't worth a slot in most decks, I don't think, oh. despite the fact that I run it. <laughs> so so don't follow my example. Um, it's kind of a safety blanket. Like, I just like holding on to eight or nine or ten cards if I have an opportunity to do that. But objectively speaking, you're probably just fine keeping your best seven and using that slot for something else. I just like to hold cards, so um, that's why I run it, and I don't know if I can justify that on a power scale. I, I feel like there's a lot of people who are going to agree with that I just like to run it part, but not necessarily agree that it's not worth it, because by all rights, utility lands are free slots. Like, sure. it's not taking up a card slot in your deck. It is free value. But this is kind of going to end up being the big crux of the conversation that we have. There, it turns out, uh, there's actually kind of limited space when it comes to which utility lands you can actually put into your deck. I mean, just ask Matt. He only runs an average of sometimes zero in his own deck. An average so, of sometimes zero. That is such an eloquent sentence <laughs> mathematically right there. I'm, I just, I can't get over that. Yes, yes, very much. But, uh, but yeah, like there's, there are definitely times where these utility lands, especially the ones where they don't necessarily come untapped, but they tapped for 
colorless mana, that can screw you over. There are decks mm-hmm. where that matters mm-hmm. a whole lot. I think specifically of my Feather the Redeemed deck, for instance, where Reliquary Tower is, I think, the only utility land that I'm playing in that deck because I need to have red and white pips so, so badly in that deck. And having colorless lands would just muck up my ability to play those one mana cantrip spells that just cost one white mana or one red mana. So colorless lands would actually sincerely get in my way in that deck. So there is a cost associated with these, even though they appear free. Yeah, Reliquary Tower especially, tapping for colorless mana. If you're playing three or more colors, I don't like Reliquary mm-hmm. Tower. Uh, it, it Just tapping for colorless, it's going to have the same kind of drawback that uh, Rogue's Passage might have, where it just, it's just not worth that type of a slot because you need the mana fixing. That's that's kind of a premium. You want to make sure that you're casting your spell. So Joey, even when you're in a two-color deck, you're, you're very cognizant of, well, this is a very colored mana-hungry deck, so I just... Reliquary Tower is the only type of effect in this utility land slot that I can afford to play before it stops, you know, or or before it starts preventing me from casting my spells. Well, here's a a fun twist on that, Matt. I am playing Reliquary Tower in a four color deck. Which I just, I don't (laughs) get that. Bless you for it. But, uh, man, I, I just, I, I don't feel comfortable running Reliquary Tower in three color decks even. It, it, it might be drifting very quickly into it depends on the deck. But you mentioned another one there, Rogue's Passage, another super, super popular deck, uh, super card, super popular card. I know how to speak words. Um, that's another card that we're seeing show up in 16% of decks that can play it. So over 84,000 decks. Rogue's Passage is another huge one where you can pay mana to make something unblockable. And there is a new card from Strixhaven called Access Tunnel that makes a low power creature unblockable. And that's one that I was really happy to see when it came to my Virtus and Gorm deck because that deck really loves having unblockable creatures. I feel like there's a whole bunch of commanders especially that love a rogue's passage to deal some commander damage. Yeah, I mean, having an option to just get something through every single time on a land, not taking up a slot in your deck, is a really big deal in a lot of decks that don't have access to trample for sure. Yeah, I, I run it in my Valduck Keeper of the Flame deck, for example, because <laughs> I build one very large creature and I just want to punch him through and also to make sure that he can't get blocked and then killed so he survives combat more often as well. So it's it's kind of a, a double-pronged attack with Rogue's Passage specifically. But again, that's that's a mono-red deck. That's not trying to you know cast you know four different colors on one spell. It's it's red, 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 some colorless, and some more red. So Rogue's Passage in, in that deck specifically, it doesn't you know, get in the way because I only need red and colorless mana. Now, compare that to another card. You mentioned Trample. Uh, Kessig Wolfrun is a utility land that I feel like we have to bring up in conversation along with Rogue's Passage because those are both lands that can be used to cause lethal damage to happen to an opponent. They are extremely proactive. Kessig Wolfrun, of course, being the utility land that you can pay X, red, and a green, tap it, and target creature will get plus X plus O and gain Trample until end of turn. With enough mana, that is a sincerely lethal card. And Matt, I do happen to know that this is one that you've enjoyed in some of your decks before because you can create so much mana to abuse with this, where this land becomes one of your win conditions, which is insanely cool. Well, you talk about how I love my onboard tricks. You know, I, I have cards out on the battlefield that you see them and you have to play around them. And, and Kessig Wolfrun is definitely one of those cards. Even if you just effectively pay three mana, just the, the red green and tap the Wolfrun, just to give a creature trample, that in itself is is great. But being able to pump it up, uh, that's just icing on the cake. 
Uh, I know that Dana has played this card a few times and then used this to give other players creatures trample. So say <laughs> Joey's attacking me, he gives Joey's creature trample, so it goes over my blockers. It's a political tool as well, which you don't really talk about in Gruel cards very often, but Kessig Wolfrun definitely fits the bill. Yeah, I mean, I, I use it in my Crash deck too, and mm. plenty often it's not even to swing, it's just to buff a creature before I fling it. <laughs> Um, or, or I've used it in that deck as well, like when someone casts a board wiper or a creature's going to die to, to some effect, just pump it up to put extra counters on Crash because it increases the creature's power and Crash gets bigger based on something dying. So it, it's a card that has a lot of kind of hidden utility on it as well. Well, and there's some more lands that just kind of fall into an entire category. Um, well, several categories really, but one that a lot of people are probably thinking of and, and shouting at their screens or just at their radio um, is just a big mana type of lands. Yeah. Uh, there's there's lots of lands that produce more than one mana. I know I, I said Dana loves Ancient Tomb because he loves paying life for his extra <laughs> mana. Um, and Ancient Tomb is just, you know, tap it, add two colorless mana and you, you know, it deals two damage to you. But there's all sorts of different lands that do all that. Just, you know, there's a trade off to making that extra mana. Temple of the False God is another one that you can add two colorless mana, uh, but you can only do that if you control five or more lands. Yeah. And I'm mm, Temple of the False God feels to me like, um, I need to mulligan those hands pretty frequently. So it's not one that I enjoy very much. And Ancient Doom is just priced out of so many people's uh, pockets. But that's also true of some other, even more famous, I think, uh, big mana utility lands like Cabal Coffers, for instance, or Nykthos Shrine to Nyx, which can tap for just bunches, oodles of extra mana. And there's tons of others from those, from the super expensive Gaia's Cradles and Sarah Sanctum to also just the cheaper ones like Cabal Stronghold. Like big mana as a proactive type of utility land can be make or break for certain strategies. I mean, the Cabal ones are just huge for any mono black deck especially like those can be linchpins to your strategy sometimes yeah i mean a, a big black mana is an archetype unto itself essentially and those decks tend to run those cards and oftentimes a way to make copies of those kind of cards um so there's so you know that's kind of something you could lump in there as well when you when you see a thespian stage in a deck it's usually mm -hmm. because someone's planning on copying they're not copying a forest they're <laughs> planning on making a copy of like cabal coffers or something with it or there are things like Deserted Temple can mm -hmm. be used to help untap those lands as well. Or Vesuva comes into play as another copy of them. There's a lot of extra tricks that you can pull off when those lands are as important as they can be. Yeah, um, and once you get past the, the kind of big mana lands, then you move on to you know things like lands that maybe sort of a defensive purpose. You have things like Maze of If. Or you have things like a core haven or, or glacial chasm that prevents people from being able to attack you. Um, mm. And there's a whole host of lands that you can use defensively to blow up other lands. There's the things like strip mine <laughs> or wasteland that exist just to trade that for someone else's land. That's one of those lands that, and I feel like this is probably the heart of where we're finding some of the stuff that you play more than Matt or I mm -hmm. do, where you run as many of these utility lands as possible. These are the lands that you are especially a big fan of because you call them, um, I don't know if you have uh, an exact name for them, I guess, but like they're the lands that help you not lose, even if they're not doing the proactive stuff like we saw with some of the other versions of the lands we talked about. These are lands that help prevent you from dying to an enemy's Keswick Wolf run, for instance. Yeah, and we talked about Bajukabog earlier. Bajukabog's one of those lands. Scavenger Grounds that hits graveyards as well is mm -hmm. one of those lands. But I, How dare you? I, I try to... <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, but yeah, like when I build the deck, when I start putting the land base together, one of the first things I do is usually put in three land removal lands 
Scavenger Grounds and Paducah Log if I can run it. So I, I try to get those right away in every single deck because if you let someone sit with the Cabal Coffers and use it, you're going to lose the game. If you let Joey do graveyard hey. stuff, you're going to lose that game. So um, hey. being able to stop those things from happening on a land that doesn't really take up a slot is very, very useful. Well, Dana, I, I would raise you another one here and say that there's another category yet that we haven't talked about, which is spell lands. And, and th that's a, another massive category, just lands that have some sort of activated ability that you can play, kind of like what Kessig Wolf Run does. Um, but just building on that, you know, Innistrad gave us a lot of these types of lands. Uh, Gavney Township obviously is a personal favorite of mine because Selesnia putting counters on all my creatures, like that's just sign me up. But you also have a whole bunch of cards like Mosswort Bridge is played in 10% of all green decks, um, over 25,000 decks out there. You have stuff like Hall of Heliod's Generosity, which every enchantment deck probably wants to be finding spaces for. Um, there's all sorts of just different activated abilities that you can be putting on there. Sometimes, Joey, there are even lands, hear me out, that are sacrifice outlets. Uh, yes. Phyrexian Tower, <laughs> you can sacrifice a creature and tap the tower to add two whole black mana to your mana pool. It's so good, and I, I absolutely, I love me an Ohi market. Like, sacrifice <laughs> outlets in my mana base, those are huge because that prevents someone else from gaining control of my stuff or from exiling my stuff, and, like, it's so great to be able to use those, especially when I can just revive them instantly. Like, those lands feel to me like the ability to flicker an ETB effect because I'm going to get them right back out of the graveyard immediately. Love me a sacrifice outlet on a land. Love me a sacrifice outlet on a land. It, you know, and in, in, in a way, there's, there's definitely a lot of overlap between these two. Phyrexian Tower gives you more mana than it would normally tap for when you sack that creature. It's giving you two. That's very much a land that can kind of go in that that big mana category as well as it can go in the spell land category. You know, Bajuka Bog is very much a spell land and a defensive land. Like a lot of these have a good bit of overlap between them for sure. Yeah. And that I think is one of the things like it, utility lands is a big umbrella term, but it seems like there's just a lot of extra stuff. Like there are many layers that you can put into and that can help you figure out which ones you should use in your decks because some of them are proactive, like the big mana lands that are advancing your strategy so much more quickly than other people might be able to keep up with. And then some of them are just being purely defensive. I remember way in the way back that Maze of Ith felt like, oh, I got to have that for all of my decks because the format itself felt a little bit slower as games were going. But things have accelerated and gotten a bit more efficient over time. And Maze of Ith isn't a thing that I keep in my decks all that much anymore. But I do have them in my more defensive or controlly feeling decks because that's just a free piece of value. Even if it doesn't tap for mana, it can just remove something from combat. Like the utility lands that you run, you can't run all of them because even even though Dana's trying to, he will sometimes <laughs> mess up his own mana base. He won't have the right colors if he's running too many of these colorless lands. But knowing the mission of your deck, is this an aggressive deck? Is this a deck that's going to take a little bit longer? Can really help sculpt which lands you want to run. Yeah, it can make a huge difference. Um, you know, I do run a lot of utility lands, but I don't just blindly run a dozen every deck. I do take into consideration what the deck's trying to do, what amount of colored mana needs, that kind of thing. So you definitely, even if you are somebody who has tendencies um, in regard to how many you run, you still need to think through which ones your deck can actually support. Right. And, and here's the other fun thing is when the utility lands start affecting your other lands as well, if you're playing a Field of the Dead, which how has it taken us this long to talk about Field of the Dead, which gives you zombies if you have enough lands with different names? I mean, 
That's the kind of thing that you'll want to run even more non-basic lands so that you can get a diversity of names. It will affect your basic lands even because you can play half regular basics and half snow basics to get multiple different types of names amongst your basics. Matt, even that's got to be one that you enjoy. I mean, I, I love Field of the Dead and I can promise you it would be in probably every single deck that I own if it weren't freaking $20. <laughs> like that card $20? is- $20? Field yeah, of the Dead is $20. You can go to cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC. <laughs> And check it out. You can you can get Field of the Dead. Um, they're just gonna say it back twenty dollars, and like that's man, that's not a cheap card anymore. Like I, I feel bad for not picking up more for my decks because I knew it was going to be just great. It's such a powerful card, but man, it's it's not a budget card anymore. No, super. I really was it ever. I mean, when it comes to lands that got banned in other places. Yeah, it, it got banned out, and that's just one of those cards that just you see how powerful it is in 60-card formats, and the power carries over into Commander, which doesn't always happen, but Field of the Dead definitely carries that banner. Yeah, and that's just it. That is a testament to how powerful some of these effects can be when they're just in your mana base and not costing you an actual spell slot. So that is kind of what got me wondering when we were thinking about putting this Utility Lands episode together about the lands that we were running in our own deck. So I started going through your guys's... I, I Facebook stalked your guys's deck lists to see how many Utility Lands on average that you were running. And there's probably a little bit of, you know, does this count as Utility Land or does it not count as a Utility Land? Like Myriad Landscape, do you count that as Utility Land? because it goes and finds you lands or do you count that as color fixing because if you're stuck on one color this can find you the other color there's probably a lot of conversation to be had around that but even then i got a good idea of a range of the types of uh utility land numbers that we were seeing and dana you just absolutely floored me with how many you're running on average getting well we'll get to some specifics in a second but me on average it looked like my decks were running like six or seven utility lands matt was running an average of three at typically dana had an average of like 11 to 12 to 13 like dana what's going on i win <laughs> i just you really you really like them i feel like we got to get to some specific ones to, to see what it is that you like about them so much do you think you have a personal favorite or what's going on there dude um, I, I just like to have answers to problems. I like to have multiple ways to, you know, take out someone's scary land. I like to have toys attached to my lands because I'm greedy and they don't take up spell slots. I mean, that's, it's entirely greed. Um, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Um, I also, I would say this, there's a couple other things I will mention. I only have one three color deck. Every deck I own is either monocolor or two color. So you have a okay. little more play there, I think, maybe than some people do who play, you know, a lot of three or four or five color decks. So I have some room to breathe there. And I do tend to run pretty good mana bases. Um, I have ABUR duels in my decks. I was lucky enough to get those years ago when they were somewhat inexpensive. Um, you know, so I have relatively tight mana bases as well. And that makes it easier to afford to have utility lands that have for colorless mana when you have a mana base that very oftentimes easily fixes your colors because most of the lands tap for two colors matt all that i'm hearing is that we need to get a blood moon against this guy <laughs> uh, i've done that before and joey you were the one that got hurt the most and <laughs> ended up targeting me so, <laughs> so i don't want to hear this deflection so i've thought about this this thing a lot and, and i actually have an explanation for it um in regards to cards like blood moon or back to basics or or magus of the moon um 
it kind of comes down to game theory, and I'm not going to go into depth about what game theory is. It's it's strategic interaction on mathematical models among decision makers. Um, yeah, that's that's way too much for me right now. So, what? So what do you even <laughs> to, to to simply explain? Yes, when someone plays a Blood Moon, I'm going to get hosed or back to basics. It's going to definitely cause me problems. But the amount of decks, number one, that can afford to run those cards without hurting themselves are pretty limited. Mm. B- Blood Moon and Magus the Moon tend to show up in mono red. You see back to basics primarily in mono blue. So that's a pretty narrow swath of decks that can do that. The decks that can do it don't always do it for multiple reasons. And then those decks have to actually find those spells. And those colors tend to not be ones that have the ability to tutor up things very easily. Um, particularly enchantments as well. So the odds of me actually getting burned by those cards are pretty low. And it seems to me the amount of times I take advantage of my utility lands generally outweighs the amount of times I get burned by one of those cards that I'm not very likely to see mathematically anyway. So there is a method to my madness. I have thought these things through and I think the advantage it generates offsets the amount of times it causes me problems. Interesting. And, and in my case, Matt, when you burn me with a blood moon, it feels like you're hitting my non-basics that were there to help me color fix. Not even that you're hurting my reliquary towers or anything like that. So then I kind of want to turn the focus to you real quick. What has you so against playing the, the utility lands? Are you more afraid of blood moon stuff or what, what's going on in your mind when it comes to that thing? See, for me, I actually kind of have the opposite stance that Dana does where he's he says that he uses his utility lands, whether they're spell lands or anything like that, fairly often. I actually find myself using all of my mana every turn, either on mm. my own turn or I'm using it reactively where I'm, I'm countering spells or I'm, I'm drawing, doing anything at instant speed. So it's not so much that I'm against utility lands, but I'm already using all of my mana on the rest of my spells that I I find myself whenever I was running a lot of utility lands, I just wasn't using them that often, maybe once or twice a game, which to me, I would rather play around the sure thing and make sure I'm not messing myself up by my third land in a three color deck is only tapping for colorless mana. I think that in my experience came up much, much more often than, oh, I'm using this one utility land three times in a game. I just, I had the opposite experience where I just wasn't using them enough to really justify using it. So I, in turn, you know, built decks to punish the greedy people who did assume, well, I'm, I'm going to activate this five, six times a game, which that's just not true. Like you, you have other spells to be casting as well. That makes sense to me. That that speaks a lot to a difference in playstyle there for sure, where Dana does seem to be eking out every possible extra bit of value. And you've got a very frank approach of like, no, my spells are already giving me all the value that I need. So I, I really do appreciate that. But I also think that you might be lying because you're just using stuff like Price of Progress or Natural Order to deal damage for the non-basics that we're running and punishing us secretly. Now, Joey, it's Primal Order, not Natural Pri- Order. Prim- primal primal order, yes. order is the one that deals the damage on every player's upkeep for every non-basic they control, which was a Dana... Roach challenge stats submission many moons ago. So really, you can thank Dana for me just loving more non-basic hate. And and every time I take eight or nine damage during my upkeep, I remember (laughs) that recommendation too. (laughs) And, And then you have to remember too, you took the eight or nine damage from Primal Order 
And then also you took eight, eight life from Sylvan Library. Uh, <laughs> you have your ancient tomb in play. So really, like, you're on a three-turn clock. Eventually, it adds up to real life loss. It's it starts mattering at some point. <laughs> at some point. Oh, man. Well, Matt, you just mentioned there are some challenges to So before we get into some of the specific lands that we have enjoyed playing most in our decks and which of our decks are using the most or the least utility lands to help give some actual practical application of all of the utility land stuff we're talking about, let's take a brief pause and challenge some stats. It's one of our favorite segments here on the podcast because there's just so much data on track, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much play or too little play. So we'd like to challenge those stats. And the Challenge of Stats segment is brought to you by Altersleeves.com. They are an awesome way to get extra art printed onto your cards without actually having to change the card itself. Really cool artwork that you can find on there. So if you go to Altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast, you can get some really nifty art sleeves on there and support the show while you're doing that. All right, Matt, would you do us the honor of starting us off? I sure can. So since we are talking about utility lands, I will talk about non-basic lands um, but those lands are still for us. Don't worry. Um, so the the card that I want to challenge this week actually came out in Strixhaven. It's Yadora Grave Gardener. Um, that is the new legendary creature from Commander 2021. Uh, it's four and a green for a 5-5 legendary creature Treefolk Druid. And it reads, whenever another non-token creature you control dies, you may return it to the battlefield face down under its owner's control. And it's a forest land with no other types or abilities. Now, the card or the commander that I really think this would be showing up in the 99 of is a Shia Soul of the Wild back from Zendikar Rising. Uh, oh. A Shia loves having more and more lands in play. Ashaya is the, uh, the legendary elemental that gets bigger, so it has power and toughness equal to the number of lands you control. And then non-token creatures you control are forest lands in addition to their other types. So Ashaya gets huge the more creatures you have on the battlefield. But one thing that mono green can struggle with is board wipes. Yes, you have stuff like heroic intervention, but if somebody plays a board wipe, they're going to blow up everything. You have to start all over again. Yodora has some just nice, like, Whisperwood elemental type of you know wrath insurance built in where all those non-token creatures are going to die you can bring them back as forests which a is going to make ashaya much easier to recast since you got maybe five or six forests back into play but also you know it's they're just feeding ashaya they're making ashaya bigger and bigger and bigger so yadora almost turns a board wipe into a ramp spell for you and it is a may effect too so you don't have to put those creatures back into play you can leave them in your graveyard if you want to regrowth them but man 37 percent of ashaya decks have been updated since commander 21 came out i think everybody wants to be playing eudora here uh, it's such a powerful effect you're getting more lands and you know they're they're not basic lands so dana probably likes it um, but it's just it's a very very powerful effect here <laughs> Yeah, um, I, that's a good pick, Matt. I tip my uh, Yodora in general direction. <laughs> <laughs> Excellently done. Okay, I'm going to move to my challenge real quick. I'm looking at Golos Tireless Pilgrim, which is such a popular commander with so many different directions that you can take it in that it almost feels a little bit silly to challenge any of the stats here because there are going to be pet cards all over this page and many different types of strategies that this one commander can encompass. Specifically, though, what strikes me as a teensy bit odd and this is just something that if you are playing the gate strategy i think you should be aware of it's that the card mazes end shows up in 27 percent of golo stacks but the guild gates show up in like 31 to 30 percent and some of them show up at 29 percent it's kind of all over the map when it comes to the guild gates specifically 
I just personally feel that those numbers should all be even with each other. If Maze's End is showing up in 27% of decks, then the Guild Gates should show up in 27% of decks. If the Guild Gates are showing up in 31%, then the Maze's End should show up at 31%. If you are looking for just different types of uh, mana fixing ideas when it comes to a five color commander like this one, the Guild Gates coming in tapped and only tapping for two colors is not going to be enough to sustain you very much. Uh, so don't 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 use those independent of the maze of ith and don't use maze of ith independent of the guild gates obviously just some small numbers that there's it's good to be aware of there's no stat too small to challenge here is basically what i'm saying but be aware that the numbers are different here if you pull an average deck for golos you're not you're going to get all 10 guild gates but you're not going to get the mazes end and that feels a little bit strange so just be aware of what's happening on that page if that's a strategy that you're interested in or if that's a strategy that you're not interested in. All right, Dana, let's take it to you. Do you also have a land-related pick? I absolutely do. Um, this one was suggested to us by patron supporter Tristan Dementia Master. Um, <laughs> Love and, it. And this is for a card that's not in a ton of decks. It's in 28, to be exact. And it's Pagliano the High City. Um, <laughs> it, it taps for one mana uh, of any color, of the chosen color as you drafted cards. Um, and since you don't draft things in Commander, this card doesn't do anything. It's a land that doesn't even tap for mana. And it's in 29 different decks. I think I might have said 28 before. It's in 29 different decks in EDH Rec, um, primarily in Golos, Tarios Pilgrim, and Ramos Dragon Engine decks. <laughs> but it's a land, let me repeat, that doesn't actually work in Commander. <laughs> So even though there's only 29 of them out there, there's just no reason for any of those 29 decks to have a land that doesn't actually work, um, utility or no. So don't run Paliano the High City in your deck. It doesn't do anything. Wow. I, I guess I wasn't kidding when I said there's no stat too small to challenge. Thank you, Tristan. Yeah, thank you very much. Now, it, it, that was, you know, it's a minor um, inclusion, but I thought it was kind of funny and worth pointing out. So in, in honor of um, running Farseek in your mono green deck, <laughs> all right all right <laughs> i just love how tristan's like making these 29 people just feel, feel very feel targeted right now, right yeah. now. but i it yeah 100 correct like this this card effectively does nothing it's kind of like a commander sphere in your eldrazi deck it just does not do anything oh because it would only tap for colored mana but the commanders Color, don't yeah. have color very sly, very sly. Lots of stuff to be aware of. All right, cool. Let's go now to back into the utility land discussion when it comes to our own personal decks. Like I said before, I'm running in my decks. It looks like an average of like six to seven. Maybe I could argue eight. Um, Matt, you were running like an average of three sometimes. And and it just like it did kind of strike me. Like I think most commonly we saw the Reliquary Tower would show up in your deck, and you also had a handful of other new ones like War Room, for example, is a really cool one that I saw show up in your Valduk deck, which is just a great way to draw extra cards in your monocolored deck. And that's that's really cool. Do you think of the ones that you're playing, you have any personal favorites that have stuck out? Um, as far as personal favorites go, the Hall of Heliod's Generosity and the Academy Ruins, that cycle of lands, mm -hmm. uh, just being able to kind of recycle any given card type, whether you know in, in Volrath Stronghold. Uh, you can recycle a creature, put it back on the top of your deck. That serves a lot of different purposes, whether you're trying to put it on the top of your deck so you can redraw next turn. That's kind of the obvious one. But say somebody plays a piece of Grave Hate and you want to preserve that that you know card, you can stick it on top of your library to save it from getting exiled. Uh, like there's a lot at. of... 
there's a lot of different ways you can apply all of these. I just, I love this cycle. I'm, I'm really excited to see what the, the red and the green ones do when they finally make them. Um, but they're just very, very powerful and in good ways of recurring, just very powerful spells that you want to be casting again that get answered. Now, here's especially what kind of threw me. You really do live by, like, when you're in a three-color deck, you will run nearly no lands at all. In fact, in your Ukima and Kazar deck, I looked through that, and you're literally running zero utility lands in the deck. It's all color fixing. Yeah, that that well, that that deck is very, very color-hungry. It's kind of like your, uh, your Feather deck, where there's a lot of different color mana pips, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to make sure that I'm hitting everything. Like, I, I have a three-drop that requires uh, blue and a black, and then I'm also casting a lot of green spells. Uh, so I, I focus on the color fixing for that deck specifically. I know I probably could find room for a few utility lands in there. Um, but I also like that deck is intentionally fairly low powered. So I'm not too worried about the utility lands in that deck. I mean, you say fairly low powered, but I've been hit by a 2022 uh, like Ukima before. And um, uh, it's the blind squirrel theory. It, it finds a nut every now and then. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And then visiting the only commander you have that even breaks above five utility lanes was Omnath. And I feel like that almost doesn't even count necessarily because Omnath is a landfall deck, not including your fetch lands. You were running and uh, seven of the utility lands, stuff like Valakut, which can deal damage, stuff like Ghost Town, which can bounce itself back to your hand so you can get more landfall triggers. But again, that's not even including your fetch lands. And fetch lands offer an unparalleled degree of utility in a landfall deck. Yeah, that, that's kind of cheating saying that a fetch land is a utility land uh, when, you know, uh, AC Tyrants of Gyre Straits is going to draw you cards and all that. Like landfall decks, I mean, anything, any land is a utility land when you you know, really get honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find is so funny, like I wanted to lay some groundwork for where you're at, like the deck that you have that contains the most amount of utility lands was Omnath at seven. Dana. Let's turn to you now, because the deck that you have that has the least amount of utility lands is Edric, which runs six. <laughs> <laughs> I'm conservative in that deck. I don't want to run too many. It's a it's a it's a colored <laughs> mana hungry deck. Reliquary Tower probably shouldn't be in there, like like I've said before. But um, yeah, you know, take it easy there. Be, be cautious. Don't run too many. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, so then as we peruse more of your of, of your, your decks out there, um, you've got a mono black deck like Vito, for example, which is playing 11. You've got your Cabal <laughs> stuff, obviously, and then, of course, your Thespians stages going on in there. And then I'll just scroll through a couple of more. Your Glissa the Trader deck, a signature deck for you. I'd love to see you playing that Golgari. 13? You're playing 13? <laughs> lands in there and you're even you're playing some of those defensive ones especially the stuff that kills stuff you've got your maze of its and you've also got like dust bowl in there to get rid of more utility lands was strip mine not enough for you i, I said I'd, i try to run three land removal lands um I, you know i i'm, I'm I, I found plenty of strip mines over the years when it was a little bit more more affordable in collections and whatnot so i have strip mines um Dust Bowl is one I, I run sometimes. It works well in the Glissa deck because I can sacrifice artifact lands to it, which are relatively easy to then recur with Glissa and get back to my hand and reuse. So there's a logic to have Dust Bowl as my third one in that particular deck. Okay, I'm actually super here for that. I really enjoy that. Now that you mention it, that, that's just really cool. Um, any any other standouts? Like I haven't even gotten to the one that you play the most utility lands in, but of your favorites, um, of, of, excuse me, of the decks that you're playing, do you have favorites that stand out? Uh, um, utility lands that just that they might become in, in along with those land destruction lands that are just like the things you immediately slot in. Are there other lands that are creeping into that space too? Um, I'm, I love War Room that was in Commander Legends. Um, you know, trading life to draw cards always feels good, but. Um, as someone who plays mostly one and two color decks, 
two life to draw a card is not very much life to, to trade for a card at all compared to what I oftentimes pay. Um, so I really have liked Warroom. I've had really good luck with it so far. Um, I like Homeward Path. Um, it was maybe a meta call years ago. I played against a few decks. I tended to steal a lot of stuff, so I tended to run it in my decks defensively. But I've just found over the years that um, it's such a blowout when it works, when someone casts that that Rise of the Dark Realms and isn't paying attention and you can just reset everything or someone steals your creature and you can just reset it. I've had people go, you know, bribery something from my library and not pay oh. attention and see that it's just sitting there untapped. Um, so, you know, it's a useful card, but it always generates something that's just amazing when you can actually utilize it. So that's one I tend to run, particularly in a deck where I don't want to lose my commander. Okay. All right. I'm following. And now, now Matt, how many lands do you think in, in the, the, the deck that Dana has that is playing the most utility lands? How many utility lands do you think do you think is playing? Just, I just, mean, just... based off of prior conversation and experience, uh, whatever my number is, double it, and then that's probably what he's doing. Yeah, um, Dana, your Vela, your blue black artifacts deck. You've got like, depending on how you count it, sixteen <laughs> utility lands in that deck. Even I feel like this is a lot. This okay, is, this so, is a lot. so you mentioned though it is an artifact deck. Um, there's, you know, I think 44 artifacts in it, so I don't need a ton of colorless sources. Um, I, I went and, and checked. There's only seven cards in the whole deck that have double-colored pips in the cost, so even the cards that are colored tend to be relatively easy to cast. So that okay. makes a pretty big difference there as well, so I can get away with that even more so in that particular deck. So there is a method to my madness as to why there's 16 utility lands in that particular uh, list. Well, and, and that's really what I think is the most valuable bit to hone in on here is that the reason you're affording it in that deck is because you've built out the space for like all of the cards are colorless. Like we can't apply necessarily any specific formula to which utility lands should you run because you've done this for a very, very specific reason. But that might not be true for any artifact deck that Matt or I build necessarily. Sure. But the way that you've crafted the entire deck has informed your mana base in such a particular way. And I feel like that's just such a hugely important lesson, both with Matt saying like, I use up all of my mana every turn so therefore these utility lands with extra abilities i just haven't found myself needing them and you for pointing like for for figuring out where the colorless sources are actually located within decks like these that have these specific these like artifact niches and stuff yeah i mean it, it's very much um it, we've used this term before but it's an art um, not a science necessarily. You just kind of have to get a feel for what your deck can afford to run based on how it's built and how what your personal playstyle. I think that makes a big difference too. The way someone plays makes a huge difference, and in the way I play, it tends to work for me. The way Matt plays, it works for him having less utility land. So I think you have to, you have to kind of find that out on your own. Yeah, it, it, and it, we've said this on the podcast several times actually. If I tried to pick up one of Dana's decks and play it. I would probably bumble around quite a bit. Uh, so it's just everybody has their own play style. And in, I, I love what you just said, Dana. Discovering what works best for you and just how you tend to play is something that just it doesn't matter whether it's lands or creatures or any type of card. Just finding what resonates with you and what you can play, um, that goes just miles as far as just if you're trying to win games, that's going to help. Yeah, very much. A thing that also kind of strikes me when looking through even just my own utility land information was actually like my monocolor decks. I had kind of expected that in my monocolor deck building, 
I would be playing fewer utility lands than in some of my other decks, but that didn't actually necessarily end up being the case. The, the reason that I thought that was because I really love stuff like Caged Sun effects, which will double up, especially if you've got your basic lands, or of course, in the case of my Conrad list, which I love to bits, the Cabal Coffers there, it really wants me to have a lot of swamps in play. So I feel like in my monocolor deck building, I really love having as many basics as I can. But even then, when I looked through those, I saw that I was running actually like 10 utility lands in that deck because Cabal Coffers wants a whole lot of support. And when I have a mono blue deck, it turns out that stuff like Mystic Sanctuary becomes pretty appealing pretty fast and it doesn't cost me as much. But even then, I look at a number like that and I my instinct is actually to go down on those because I want to enhance my utility lands by shaping my mana base around that by filling it with more basics. So it's just so fascinating to see some of those lands that will have an adverse effect on you, the rest of your mana base just by trying to include one of them that reshapes what the rest of your land base is going to look like too. Well, you know, you talked about a Maze of Ith earlier in the show, Joey, and how it doesn't have for mana, um, you know, that's a land I'm much more comfortable running in a a black deck where you might have a chance to have Urborg out mm-hmm. to, to make it so it actually taps for mana if you need to. Um, and that's that's made a difference. Like I, I have discovered that in my my black decks tend to be the ones where I do have, I think I have two Maze of Iths still in decks currently. Mazes of Ith, I guess, technically it would be. <laughs> um and that makes a difference because I, I I often do have ways to go get Urborg as well in that deck and, and being able to tap that maze I'm not using it for mana fixes a lot of that particular problem as well. So like, yeah, just knowing your play style, even if it's in a monocolor deck um, and being able to turn those utility lands into you know, something that, that isn't necessarily tapping for color, colored excuse me, colorless mana can make a huge difference. Right, and, and that's, I don't know, I feel like that's just the lesson that I want to take away from this. If Matt was to build a mono black deck and I built a mono black deck and you built a mono black deck, I feel like our utility land numbers would be just as different as we've seen here. Like, I totally would understand someone who's just like, I'm just going to play Cabal Coffers and then just a bunch of swamps. Because that's that enhances the Cabal Coffers a whole lot in that mono black deck. And I would also totally understand someone who's like, I can afford to play a bunch of basics because I'll get Cabal Coffers with Urborg to turn all of those other non-swamp cards into swamps. Like, those both make a whole lot of sense, and the entire deck can be shaped around it. And so there's just so much, I don't know, the lesson for me with Utility Lands is that this is where you can find so much personal flair within someone's deck building style to see where it is that they're drawing extra value and why. Well, and even if you're just, like, in your example there, you don't even need to use Cabal Coffers. Like you can use Cabal Stronghold and a bunch right. of and a bunch of basic plane or a bunch of basic swamps. Excuse me, um, in case you don't have that extra hundred dollars laying around because Cabal Coffers <laughs> oh, no, is not right. a cheap card, like at yeah. all. Um, so Cabal Stronghold, like if you're playing Bono Black, you can get away with playing Cabal Stronghold in a pile of swamps, and you have the Matt Morgan special right there, and it's going <laughs> to do well. Yes, like, I, I just I hope that people don't feel pressure to you have to be playing Cabal Coffers because a it's extremely expensive and b like a lot of times in, in, in the more colors you add into a deck the less effective that gets mm-hmm. and so just being mindful I we've talked about kind of crafting the deck around your utility lands man if if you're not playing very many swamps actual swamps you probably don't want to be playing Cabal Coffers anyways yeah so and and, and this too like. 
I wanted to look through a handful of the most popular commanders to see what are their utility land numbers like. And it turns out, Matt, they're kind of in line with you when we look at the average data. I looked up Atraxa, for instance, and there are only two uh, utility lands that show up in her average deck, stuff like Karn's Bastion, for example, to help with additional proliferation. I looked up Moldrotha. Again, only two utility lands show up in her Oof. average deck data, stuff like Bajuka Bog, for example, which is really mean to repeat from the graveyard <laughs> with Moldrotha, but... I, I understand that's quite a lot of value. Um, Eureka was another one. Only three utility lands showed up in that one. So like Matt, they are definitely on more your end when it comes to the average data. But I think that that's kind of a little bit misleading because everyone's got their own personal flair that they're adding into it. So these are just some of the core cards, but you're going to find tons of different types of utility lands just based off of personal preference, as we've seen just with our own deck building here. Well, you said it best. Like If we all made an Atraxa deck, the utility lands that all three of us would make would be very, very different. Uh, any of these, like it, it's, yes, th these are the average numbers that the average attracts a player is only playing two, but man, th that's a four color deck. Like you you want to be making sure that you're casting attracts a fairly on curve that requires a lot of mana fixing, not, you know, having these lands that tap for colorless mana. So being able to cast your spells, it looks like the average player is prioritizing that. And I, I get it because that's exactly how I feel with my own decks. Yeah, I mean, like if you are in doubt, uh, run more basics and more lands that make colored mana. Like if, if particularly in a new deck, like if, if you are just brewing something brand new, I would definitely say lean into less utility lands and more basics so you can just get the job done consistently every single time. Now maybe as you play the deck and get more comfortable with how it plays, how it runs start to make other tweaks to it, then you can maybe notch that number up. But I, I would definitely suggest leaning into less utility lands in, in a new deck um, or yeah. if you're a new player, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would start with minimal utility lands and add them in as you get more familiar. Uh, putting too many in there, uh, especially before you really have the the pace of the deck figured out, definitely can you know hinder you progressing with that deck. Yeah, and, and while it's weird to hear Dana say stuff like play more basics, which doesn't line up with his own personal... He finally started listening to me. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it would happen eventually. But yeah, just be aware that like the average stuff that you see, like the most popular ones, those are the most popular, but they may not demonstrate personal flair. And that's one of the most exciting pieces of deck building. Mm -hmm. And utility lands happen to be a means of demonstrating personal flair in such a cool way. So look out for those, even if they're not showing up as the most popular ones. There's so much that you can do with these. And, and fellas, I, I did have one final thing that I wanted to ask you guys about as we're wrapping up here just a quick data tidbit that i thought would be a fun to, to snack on as we're leaving what would you think is the commander that's playing the most utility lands do you have a guess um probably something that's one or two colors um Dana? I, actually uh, I, I would guess one of the omnaths just for landfall triggers or something would have been my, my guess. Maybe the, the three-color Omnath. All right, all right. M Matt, it sounded like you almost came around to a guess. I have an idea, but I'm not sure I want to say it out loud, just in case I'm horribly <laughs> and terribly wrong. It, it's a podcast. You don't get to hide behind that. Come on, out with it, out with it. I, I was thinking, guess. actually, so, something that can't play a lot of traditional lands. Oh, um, yeah, okay. You're, you're so, absolutely right on the money, man. Like, I'm thinking of Ashlyn Rose here um, <laughs> and how many utility lands she played. Good call. In, in her Eldrazi deck, there purely out of necessity. Yes, yeah. So when it comes to utility lands, colorless decks, 
they don't have access to basics, so it's like all utility lands. There, there it is. Why run wastes when you can run so many other, there's so many other types of lands out there. So if you're looking for utility land ideas, that might even be a really great place to start because there are going to be so many different colorless options out there. So yeah, just a fun extra thing to, to put on there. And Ashlyn, I hope that that's a, a, a good note for you um, as well because um, it wasn't just the Eldrazi that stomps us. Sometimes it's the utility lands as well, and it's always good to keep that in mind. This was a really fascinating look at a whole bunch of extra data just in our own mana bases here. Listeners, we would really love to hear from you about the utility lands that you are playing most, that you have the most success with, and which decks you're playing them in as well. This is such a fascinating episode. Thank you guys so much for joining me. But if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. Um, our guests are always just destroying us and making us look <laughs> silly. Um, so make sure you tune in for that because it still is a, a just absolute blast of a time. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm writing articles once a month for EDH Rec and for Commander's Herald. And you can find all three of us together in unison at <laughs> patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. I don't know how in unison we are. We have a lot of different, <laughs> like we play all different types of utility land. So who even knows what we're in unison about? Anyway, I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on both Facebook and on Twitter. And if you've got a question, you can reach out to us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone. They handle all of the post-production work on our podcast here. So thank you guys so much. And they go out to our sponsors. They are TCG Player, CardKingdom.com, and Altersleeves.com. You you can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC or altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast to show your support for the show. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>